I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about me, Danny Moran. I'm a man on the edge. Sorry, I'm going to say I'm a man on the ledge. I am literally standing on the ledge of the 40th floor of the hotel I just checked into. The authorities just snapped into action, but I talked to one person, police negotiator Sam Foster. Sam gets my fingerprints from a cigarette butt I left in my hotel room and brings up my criminal record. Turns out I'm an ex-policeman who was arrested for stealing a diamond worth $40 million from a prominent businessman. Anyway, I was given a 25-year sentence at the Sing Sing Correctional Facility, but I escaped a month into that sentence while attending the funeral of my father. Is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 2012 Sam Worthington classic, Man on a Ledge. With a title like that, it's incredible it's not better remembered. This is, in fact, just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is the taciturn, but beautiful, Sam Foster. Hello. Humans, under our calm exteriors, are we wild animals, desperately lonely neurotics, or maybe a mixture of both? That's the sort of deep philosophical question we'll be asking this week on Film Chat, as Danny and I try to sound intelligent talking about a pair of grown-up films for adult smarty pants, the allegorical 70s set sci-fi drama High Rise, directed by up-and-coming egghead Ben Wheatley and written by brainiac Amy Jump, based on the novel by notorious Poindexter J.G. Ballard, and Anomalisa, a stop-motion animation from the bespectacled mind of massive boffin Charlie Kaufman. We'll also be asking some even more fundamental questions about what it means to be alive, possibly including, what's this about a Ben-Hur remake? Is Indiana Jones 5 a good idea? And in the latest Civil War trailer, when Iron Man says underoos, WTF does that mean? All that should leave just enough time for my three-hour training course, How to Stroke Your Chin Like a Genuine Genius which covers every variation of the classic ruminatory robbing maneuver, from the single finger drawn steadily down a clean-shaven chin dimple, perfect for when someone asks you about the ending of Inception, to the gentle tug on the strands of a wispy goatee, which is ideal for expressing thoughtful ambivalence about a Werner Herzog film you secretly haven't seen. I wonder if Katie will decide that deserves to be in the final mix of the episode. You can't see me, but I'm stroking my chin. He is. Yeah, I I seriously am. Short films six hours long We've got films up to 
Dougal McQueen has written into Film Chat, as he frequently does. He says, sorry for writing in so often. That's fine. Don't apologise, man. You can't write in too often, Dougal. If it wasn't for you, this this would just be blank space right now, this part of the episode. Yeah, it's pretty much become your segment. It has. <laughs> he says, you know that whenever you mention me in the podcast, I get an orgasm. Okay. And this one, should you choose to read it out, and I hope you do, is going to be a double yoker. Because possibly for the first time ever, I've seen a film that neither of you has yet, namely Anomalisa. We've both seen it now. We've both seen that. Sorry. I caught it at the new Goldsmiths Curzone, because that's the sort of happening chap I am. And it was really good. Maybe it was a bit simple in what it was trying to convey, but I thought, like lots of good movies, it was loose enough to allow you to see your own ideas and feelings in it. It doesn't really compare much to other stop-motion animations, except the bit where the main character rallies his plucky friends to build a wooden World War II bomber to escape the farm. All in all, I give it two plasticky thumbs up. Now, where are those Costa Coffee napkins? What does that last bit mean? I think he's referring to his ejaculate. Oh, I see. <laughs> I was confused by the phrase a double yoker. Yeah, I like think two, two egg, yolks and eggs. an egg. So usually when he orgasms, it's like one egg's worth. Oh, is that so he's extra happy? Yeah, so he's now climaxed twice. Those or both cum jokes. Once. I was, when I read this, I didn't get either of those things, but you're now telling me they're both cum gags. I think they're cum gags. <laughs> I hate to inform you, but I think they're cum gags. Well, there's a semen gag in Anomalisa. So he's probably inspired by that. He's sure. like, semen jokes are the thing now. Yeah. Yeah. I never, but yolks are uh, yellow. Does he mean like double white? Double whiters? Is he referring to like a sort of scrambled egg recipe? It's like if you if you just use one egg if you're eating by yourself, but if you're having a special day and you want... I thought it was going to be there was two parts to the question and you're getting two bang... It's like a bang for your buck kind of thing where yeah. you get two questions in one. Why specifically Costa napkins? I guess he just drinks a lot of Costa and he's got them around all the time. Um, yeah. It seems odd to specify. Well, or maybe they're just the most absorbent for semen, you know? He's tried out all the different you know, modern high street coffee chains. Sure. <laughs> Put him on, Jay. He's not absorbent enough. He's pleasured himself into... Cafe Nero, <laughs> course. Yeah, into each one of them. And Costa is the ideal. That's like the Goldilocks napkin for absorbing male ejaculate. Probably. It's remarkable how, though we're called Film Chat, we can just discuss all manner of things. Yeah, with equal kind of uh, knowledge and expertise. Absolutely. Yeah. Suavity. Thanks, um, thanks, Dukes. Thanks, Dukes. Clean yourself up. And see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Superhero films announced, casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's been to print. So, old properties being rebooted are... Uh, what Hollywood does now. Yeah, it's getting ever more common. And the most recent addition to this ever-growing list is they're going to officially make an Indiana Jones 5 with Steven Spielberg signed on to direct and Harrison Ford reprising the role and Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, who are the producers of the original trilogy, signing on to produce. Actually, I think Kathleen Kennedy 
She's Frank Marshall's wife, and she's just done the new Star Wars. I'm oh, not sure okay. if she's produced the previous three, but Frank Marshall has, and now they're just like a team. Okay, cool. Were they were they in, were they doing Indy Four? I think they did. Yeah, Frank Marshall definitely did Indy Four. He's Spielberg's guy. Okay. So it, it's penciled in for be in uh, to be released in 2019, at which point Harrison Ford will be 77 years old. <laughs> That's really old, isn't it? No. This throws up a lot of questions, right? Because the fourth one is generally considered to be quite bad. Yes, I would say of, so. Had like a sort of fairly okayish reception, and which is just dimmed in time. Definitely, I think it had a kind of general fondness for the property style reception. It was like he's wearing the hat again. He's got the whip again. Yeah. And then people look back and they're like, "What was with the monkeys and the, <laughs> why was Sheila Burf in it?" You know. Exactly. The one bit of good news or bad news, depending on your opinion, is that George Lucas is currently not involved. And people blame him for well, everything. Uh, yeah, but, people love to blame George Lucas for but stuff. But there's the alien thing, which was a big uh, point of controversy in the last movie, was his idea. That was idea. And also, wasn't he also the, the brainchild behind the nuclear bomb on the fridge? Yeah, maybe. He survives a nuclear bomb because he's in a fridge. Yeah, that was a bad idea as well. That was weird. But here's a couple of questions, right? So the previous one was set in the 50s, and he's finding communists. And that was in 2008. So it'll be 11 years on from... The okay. last movie. So, will this one be the 60s? Who are the villains going to be? Because you can't... The Nazis were great as but, villains. I'm, the my, commies, not so good. Yeah, maybe it have to be the commies again. I don't know. What was the big threat in the 60s? Well, still the commies, right? Unless it's like the Viet Cong or something. <laughs> What's with the resurgence of communists in Hollywood pictures? <laughs> and uh, now that Shire's gone nuts, he was like sort of up-and-coming guy from the Transformers kind of yeah. happy-go-lucky every man in 2008 and now he's like insane oh, performance sort of, artist yeah well i i think that would be great actually if they kept him in but it's like the kid kind of went a bit insane you know <laughs> he really went off the rails um since last time it's just that's one of those decisions that i think people can agree was bad and i would wouldn't be surprised if they just decided like you know he never really existed sure and they just gave up on the whole idea of uh, sheila Berth. Yeah, yeah. And just re- replace him with someone else. Okay, so another trend in the movie industry, um, as well as resurrecting old franchises, they are also expanding the number of ways that we can enjoy our movies. Movies and TV are kind of melding together. Everything seems to be on demand these days. Yeah. And increasingly, smaller indie properties are doing simultaneous releases. If they don't think they're going to get a lot of views on uh, in theatres, then they do simultaneous releases on online and um, on video on demand and that kind of thing like Ryan Gosling did with his movie and various other things like that. Sean Parker is working on a new way for you to watch your movies. It's called The Screening Room, and the idea behind it is that it's a somewhat expensive system that will allow you to watch movies, major blockbuster movies, um, at home the day that they come out. And uh, there is a Marvel-style civil war splitting Hollywood down the middle here on this with some people um, in favor of it and some people very much against it. So the way that it will work is that you will pay $150 to get your set-top box and each movie will cost you $50, but you won't have to trek to the cinema to see Transformers 7. You just pop it on um, at home where it won't look any good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so... um, Scorsese, J.J. Abrams, Steven Spielberg, Ron Howard, Brian Grazer. Who's Brian Grazer? Don't know. Don't know. And Peter Jackson. They're all on board with it. And the case being made for it is that it will entice audiences who don't go to the cinema now. But on the other side, characters like James Cameron and Christopher Nolan 
um, are opposed to the idea on pretty much exactly that basis that it will further hasten the end um, of cinemas, which are already struggling in some cases to attract the numbers that they used to. Yeah. Uh, what do you reckon, Danny? Well, um, I'm surprised that so many prominent A-listers... I mean, just from it just sounds like a bad idea. I wonder if there's information, the like ins and outs of it, like Sean Bocker's pitch to these people is like really convincing. First of all, like there's no way that's not going to aid piracy. In, like, Absolutely, yeah, way. because like, all these movies would be digitally available. So I understand like people cinemas aren't very good. Like, well, it's hard to find a good one, like a chain, and like there's a lot, of, a lot of politics about you know big corporate chains muscling out small independent cinemas. Yeah, and the and big the big overpriced. chains are getting worse and they're worse. They're getting worse and worse. It seems stupid to hasten that kind of process. I don't understand how it would work out. And like um, lots of sort of um, the art house cinema group, they've got they're kind of like guilds, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and smaller theater owners are speaking out against it because they're like, so the money they would have got for screening that movie in the cinema, how does that get divided between all the cinemas that now you're taking a chunk out of their revenue? How are they compensated? When you know this is kind of built on sand their arguments slightly because they're saying it's gonna attract people who don't go to the cinema like you're quantifying something which they can't quantify like, yeah how do you how do you know how do you know yeah yeah because by definition they're not there so yeah. yeah yeah it's true it's a bit of a strange idea um and also james cameron was making the case that these movies are made to be seen on a big screen and it's just like it just seems it does seem silly to spend like however many millions making this massive spectacular show and then for it to be watched like in shit surroundings like immediately. I yeah, don't know. I definitely have some sympathy with that idea. So, so I mean, I don't really know. Also, he stats, seemed but... like a total dick in the social network. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's just because I dislike Justin Timberlake. He just seemed like a dick. He well, Timberlake seems like a bit of a dick. Yeah, a little bit. Sorkin seems like a bit of a dick. Yeah, and Sean Parker seems like a bit of a dick. Well, if and th- if those guys, they obviously knew that Parker was a dick. Cause they were playing him up as a dick. <laughs> so even dicks think he's a bit of a dick. Also, like his, so. he's most famous for inventing Napster. Like his business model is based on stealing people's content. That's true. You know, like that's true. People will be looking at him and be like, "You're all, you're all famous as a digital thief." <laughs> yeah, exactly. What are you doing, muscling in in the movie business? Fuck off. Yeah, yeah. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they lap one another, speak, or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. So it's an exciting time of the year for movies coming out. Last week we had a new Coen Brothers film, which is always much anticipated. And this week we get another um, cinema great bringing out his latest project. Um, That's Charlie Kaufman, who hasn't done anything since 2008's Synecdoche, New York, which was a dazzlingly ambitious, crazy, mind-bending film, like a lot of the ones that he makes are, um, but didn't do terribly well. So I think he's been struggling to get stuff made. Um, And this project, which is called Anomalisa, started life as a sound play just kind of like a radio play live performed um a project that he did with carter burwell he was approached by some animators to turn it into a stop-motion animation and they raised the funds partly through kickstarter and at the time it was the most successful film kickstarter ever and they raised something like 400 plus thousand dollars to make it 
Uh, and it came out last year in the US to great critical acclaim, but not terribly much box office fast, unfortunately. And now it's out over here, so we'll see how much of a splash it makes. Um, it's all puppet animated, and there's only three people <laughs> in the cast. David Thewlis is the main guy. He's this guy called Michael Stone, and he's a kind of celebrity in the world of customer service. And he's visiting Cincinnati to deliver a lecture. And he is super bored and depressed by life. He's going through a bit of a midlife crisis. And he perceives pretty much everyone as looking and sounding exactly the same. They all sound like Tom Noonan, and including his wife and son and stuff. Uh, and then he's kind of jolted out of his doldrums when he meets a person who has a different voice, which is the voice of Jennifer Jason Lee, a um, woman called Lisa. And they connect in the hotel. Here's a clip from the beginning of the movie when Michael is landing in his plane. Not, it's not his personal plane, but it's a plane he's landing in Cincinnati in. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to be the first to welcome you to Cincinnati. Where the local time is 7.43 p.m. and the temperature is 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Sorry, I, I grabbed your hand. It's okay. It's a reflex. I'm usually sitting next to my wife. But I don't like to fly. I said it's okay. You can let go now, though. So Strong Lancaster accent. Yes, <laughs> I kind of like it. Yeah. It's one of the things I really liked about the movie is um, David Thewlis's soothing uh, northern voice throughout the movie. So I have been wrestling with this movie pretty much ever since I saw it. I went to see it by myself in a slightly grumpy mood, and I left pretty much wanting to leap off a bridge into <laughs> the cold embrace of the river. They're going to put that on the poster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and just be carried out to sea and just drown and die. Um, <laughs> just through sheer misery. So it sort of, it left me like feeling a bit down. It's a bit of a downer film. And Kaufman's movies often have, I mean, most of the ones he's written have a melancholic strain to them, but like they've become increasingly confrontational with the reality of like the sort of harshness of human existence. And uh, that was what was most prominent in my mind when I left it. And I also didn't quite understand it. I didn't completely understand the ending. So I've been sort of wrestling with it, wrestling with it a lot since then. And I'm, I'm still not totally sure. And I feel like both with this and High Rose, which we'll be reviewing later, they're movies that you need to see more than one time. And we've both only seen them one time. So yeah. I think everything we say about this film should be taken with a grain of salt that it's like an initial reaction. And in the Film Chat episode 85, we'll review the exact, we'll nail it. the exact two movies again. We'll see them like three more times each. And then we'll you know, have a great, incredible take. As of now, I'm like not 100% convinced. The thing that I did think was absolutely fantastic in it is the animation. And the way that the animation interacts with the story and the way the narrative like exists with the medium is really, really clever and works absolutely perfectly. And it looks like nothing else. It's a completely unique looking film. It's stunningly beautiful. The puppet animation is incredibly lifelike. And they do a very interesting thing with it. So the puppets look real like they have the faces of um, michael and lisa are based on real people's faces and they've got they've been deliberately crafted to look real like they're not cute and yeah, it's yeah. not cute animation it's sure. like animation for adults but when you try to make something real then you have this problem of the uncanny valley which is um a term that refers to the strange 
kind of disconnecting sensation you get when you see something which looks so real that it doesn't like it's sort of between lifelike and fake you yeah know? like um, polar express like polar express is that exactly. there's a problem with those weird robert zemeckis films or like final fantasy the spirits within you know where people yeah. were really hating how many hairs were being animated on everyone's you know head like and it was all incredibly detailed but it doesn't look real and, and as an audience you can tell that it isn't real and it kind of is unsettling and weird and this movie grasps, like, uses that to its advantage by having it... Well, it's sort of thematic in the film that it's, like, disconnected and alienated and unsettling. But they also make them look really real, but they leave this huge crease across the, everyone's forehead in the puppetry. So they have this, like, massive, like, uh, gap in their faces where the um, mechanism works. And that is all sort of built into the story. And they've got this amazing, like, their eyes look really real. And uh, the skin is sort of luminous. Um, and it looks like there's blood underneath it and it just uh, yeah it's a re- it's obviously an incredible technical achievement and that was probably the thing that I like the best about it yeah I'm I'm equally sort of perplexed but I think I'm, I'm a bit more up on the movie and like I was like I'm not sure if I understand it completely or I didn't understand I really really loved and I think Charlie Kaufman has become just cinema's key examiner of the human condition and what this movie really successfully articulates is the sort of universal feeling of uh, being alone and the idea that you're the only one of your kind in the yeah. universe and everyone else is part of a club and you you somehow slipped in and you just have no idea what you're doing. And it also examines the sort of slightly either brutally honest or pessimistic, depending on your worldview, idea that relationships are on some level narcissistic and that when you were looking for somebody just to validate your existence. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really, it really sold that idea. And I really, and I haven't seen a movie do that as well as this movie did it. So I was like kind of blown away by how it kind of spoke to me on a very, a very human level. Yeah. It's hard to say. Like, well, the thing, like the interesting thing about the movie is that the, the main guy is portrayed as not particularly likable. First of all, any movie that's about a guy who's depressed and hates everyone and perceives everyone as monotonous and boring is got its work cut out for it to like interest you, you know, yeah. because all the first scenes are meeting people who literally are identical and them saying things that the main guy finds boring. And I think that the, the the animation helps a lot there as well because you can spend the first part sure. of the movie just marveling at how incredibly well it's made. But even though the main guy is like you know a dick, it's still tr- like it seems like it's trying to say something like make some kind of fundamental comment about the human condition, you know, rather than just being like, look at this miserable dude, isn't he like freaking out? Yeah, well, it's just like a lot of uh, the film's critics have cited like that character as a problem, and that he's like you just don't want to spend any time with him. But I would found him. I mean, I think I hope. I think I'm a nicer person. Yeah. Guy, but like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, something so desperately tragic about his worldview. Yeah. And his sort of uh, pursuit of uh, Lisa is a bit predatory, but it comes across as more like desperate. Like he's just he just wants to find somebody, you know, who who gets him, or you know, yeah, or just someone who's property. different. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which is uh, kind of profound. I kind of really, I was really sold on that as an idea. Well, there's a lot of these movies which are about grumpy intellectual guys who are depressed and then they meet a sort of bubbly girl who sort of breaks through their shell and uh, briefly um, shines sunlight into their miserable lives, you know. It's yeah. a bit like the Manic Pixie Dream Girl cliche, 
Which um, Kaufman dissected in Internal Sunshine of Spotless Mind. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but in this movie, there there is an extent to which, because the movie is so personal to that, to Michael Stone's viewpoint, her character is always going to be a bit secondary um, and exists mainly to further the argument that he's making about the you know the loneliness of existence and i just found her to be a bit too much of a cipher and especially because for whatever reason she is deliberately mundane as well like everyone else in her life you know he perceives as really boring but she is also just as normal as possible and the only thing that um, makes her different is the fact that her voice is different but she's just a very very regular person and he doesn't have to try to make a connection with her because she knows who he is because to her he's a celebrity in the customer service world and so she like worships his customer service book or whatever so they don't have to try to make a connection she's instantly like oh my god you know you're michael stone i love you um and he's like oh my god i love you because you don't you don't sound like everyone else and everything that she says is sort of likable in a super duper ordinary way their romance was kind of flat a bit to me except for the sex scene which maybe we'll talk about a bit more later which is really brilliant but everything else was just a bit like reinforcing the idea that there's nothing really going on it's only his perception that something special is going on but there's nothing actually going on which seems is like the one moment in the movie that seems like it's not as pessimistic as the rest of it (laughs) actually is as well yeah no absolutely you know I don't know. I, I couldn't tell whether the, it's a mixed message or whether it's just the most supremely nihilistic film of all time. Well, with Kaufman, this is... Uh, it sounds like I'm a like, member of his cult or something, but with stuff that I don't understand, I'm just... I have, I'm willing to believe that there's just like a purpose to everything. And, yeah. there's, and I, it all kind of... You know, like, if I watch it again, it won't be a waste of time. Like, everything is there for a reason. Yeah. And... Uh, I have like, my own theory about the ending. Okay. It, it is definitely a movie, and I think this is something that he said, that um, he wants people to kind of find their own... You, know, you find your own meaning in I yeah. guess I think for anyone who makes a layered movie or any layered work of art, they don't want to just go out to people and be like, well, when I did this, I meant this. You know, yeah, because yeah, that completely dis, you know, removes the purpose of having made the art in the first place. And uh, so I'm sure... I don't know. It just didn't feel like something that was supposed to be massively enigmatic. To... But to us, it was. Yeah. To <laughs> 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 know what the hell's going on. And so, like, a more... Uh, less philosophical point. I yeah. think uh, one of the reasons the movie is super successful is the cast are amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're and, all brilliant, yeah. Um, it's hard to pick out which one's the best, but I think there's something amazing about Tom Noonan playing every single character with the same voice, deliberately the same voice, and somehow changing it like a by a nanosecond beat or something yeah, to yeah. create all these different characters. No, I agree completely. It was like, because he was given a contradictory task of playing different characters, and yet the point is that they're the same. Yeah. And yet he somehow manages to invest them with just enough difference that you can distinguish between them. And that's yeah. kind of, yeah, it's a real brilliant performance. He's like a very convincing uh, broken-hearted ex-lover and child and yeah. bellhop. Yeah. He's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, he is He is fantastic. And uh, David Thewlis has uh, imbued so much pain in his voice. I don't know if it's the Lancashire accent or... Oh. Uh, time know. is limited. Time is limited. Everybody has X. And uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, who's, you know, from not being in a movie I've seen in like 10 years, is you know, everywhere now. Well, two, two she's movies. in two films everywhere. Yeah, she's like, she does a lot with it, I think. She does. Like, on... And one of the things I think is a testament to the film and just Kaufman in general is that 
on paper some things that seem a little trite work so the fact that he's like you know depressed i mean i guess it depends on your opinion on the film but like depressed man meeting peppy girl you don't think that would work and i think it does in the same way like adaptation just seems like a sort of self-indulgent mess as a premise but then it's like so brilliantly layered that it comes together i think partly he sells the personal vision of his movies in a way that transcends the cliche a little bit so yeah. that even though the building blocks of this movie are quite standard, and it's very much your off-the-shelf midlife crisis, but he ov- he's in- you feel like he's invested his life's blood into every word the characters are saying, you know, so I think that sells it to an extent. I either did or didn't get it. It would mm. be my... Like, I definitely got a lot out of it, but not everything... Yeah. Or I understood some, what I understood I loved, what I didn't understand. I'd say like there's two again. There's sort of like two aspects to my misgivings, like which is one a sort of genuine feeling like maybe the movie doesn't quite work. And also the fact that it really like I've just found it so miserable that um that like that was an issue in and of itself, even if it was a great work of art. But I do want to say, to end my comments on a positive note, the sex scene in Anomalisa is a classic. Yeah. It's like a modern classic scene of cinema. And the thing that's so brilliant about it, and this is another thing where I read someone else, like I read the Robbie Collin review, which used that mean he loved the sex scene as well. So yeah. I was like, great, it's not just me. You yeah. know? But most sex scenes are either sort of erotic, steamy, softcore, kind of candles lit everywhere. Those kind are the ones scenes. I watch. Yes, I watch those very frequently. Just, you know, during breakfast. Yeah, absolutely. Three before lunch kind of thing. Um, and then, or they're like the sort of Game of Thrones style, like boobs out, rutting you know i watch even more of those <laughs> like sort of animalistic like those kinds sure. of things or they're the kind of comedy fumbling scenes in which uh it's supposed to be more like real sex but it's played a bit for laughs like look at these goofy nutcases and their stupid sexual like behaviors but in this movie the sex scene is um although bits of it are kind of funny it's done almost like forensically realistically and uh very tenderly it's basically like you're just watching two real people have sex. But if you were actually doing that, it would be like creepy and voyeuristic. But it somehow sells it to you as tender and romantic. Yeah. So you'd expect it to be on paper. You expect to be uncomfortable watching it because it's too un um, flashy. You know, mm. it's too unslick. But it actually really brings across the sort of tenderness and romance of like a genuine connection between people in a way that's almost incongruous with the rest of the movie because i felt like that's the pretty much that was the only time i didn't feel uncomfortable um and uh and the fact that it's all done with animated puppets is just astounding so that was you know that hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was unique and brilliant. Yeah, loved it. Loved it. Time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack and telephone a friend so you know where she's at. Like, that's enough, now back to film chat. Alright, okay, now we got <laughs> Anomalisa out of the way. 
more fun. More a fun film, film which I completely understand <laughs> and can articulately talk about, which is High Rise. This is the adaptation of J.G. Ballard's book of the same name, which was written and released in the mid-70s, 75, I believe. It is written by Amy Jump and directed by Ben Wheatley, director and writer of Film in England and Sightseers and Kill List and all those great movies. And the plot is the movie set in the late 70s, a young doctor called Robert Lang, played by Tom Hiddleston, moves into the middle floor of a newly built high-rise uh, building. And the building offers everything required for modern living, including supermarkets, gyms, swimming pools, automated services. He befriends members from all different floors, including bullish documentarian Richard Wilder, played by Luke Evans, socialite Charlotte Melville, Melville played by Sienna Miller, and the building's architect Anthony Royal, played by Jeremy Irons, who lives on the top floor. And at the start of the film, it's all decadence on cocktail parties and fun and games. But as the automated functions of the highway start to fail, the underlying tensions between the different floors bubbles over into violence. Here is a clip of Robert Lang, played by Tom Hiddleston, meeting Anthony Royal, the architect. Ah, Dr. Lang. I hear you play squash. Yes, I do. You built all this. Dreamt, conceived. I hardly wrote my sleeves on of course, project far from finished. Over five times in all, circling the lake. Something like an open hand. The lake is the palm, and we stand on the distal phalanx of the index finger. There. I put all my energies into this time. I'm its midwife, so to speak. Mm. It looks like the unconscious diagram of some kind of psychic event. Well, that's good. I'll use that. By all means. Mm. Ooh. Wonderful voices. Two beautiful Smeeth Rada voices. Yeah, so I've read the book and I saw this at the London Film Festival a few months ago. So really I should have processed and fully understand this film by now. You've already had a week to process it, so you don't know what's going on. Well, it's fun. We're seeing it from two different perspectives. I didn't read the book, and I saw it last week. So, Yeah, so as someone who has read the book, I think it's a great adaptation uh, <laughs> in that it really captures the spirit and what makes the book really good, but it's also very much its own thing, and it's equally a Ben Wheatley film as it is a J.G. Ballard adaptation. And on a purely superficial level, it's just cool to see uh, a British movie with a bit of a bit of budget with a movie star cast which isn't kitchen sink or costume drama and it's jam-packed full of ideas yeah, or and, harry and, potter film or... and it really goes for it it's absolutely like super like bold filmmaking and you know it doesn't sell you know it sets up these ideas and he sees them to like the end yeah yeah and it's a pretty unique viewing experience in that it's a period sci-fi film so they're examining a, the late 70s which has already happened but it's what some guy thought it would be like. And some of it's come true and some of it hasn't. Mm, it's full of these interesting contradictions. Like Absolutely. it feels very present and very forward looking, but at the same time, it's almost as if it was made in the seventies about how they thought <laughs> the near future was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And it really, I was impressed by how the story, this is something from the book, which the film very accurately recreates is how it constantly subverts your expectations. And, uh, to the point where I was like, is this movie subverting my expectations or are my expectations just shallow and derivative? And I was like, isn't that's exactly what the tenants in the buildings judge each other based on nothing on the floors? And I was like, this movie is far cleverer than I am. <laughs> Instantly. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. 
I'd say it's brilliantly directed by Ben Wheatley, and the adaptation by his wife slash screenwriting partner Amy Jump is amazing. And I don't know whether it's a case of they were influenced by ballad, and that's seeped into their DNA of their earlier works, so or it's just a bit of lucky creative synergy. Well, I also think it's to do with the fact that um, the the movie is very influenced by the British film, like the more out there British filmmaking of the seventies, which is part of a general cre- like cultural yeah. milieu. If you know to sound like a dickhead, that ballad was also a part of. So, yeah. like Nick Rogue and Ken Russell and those kinds of guys sure. had similar, you know, takes or like similar feeling as ballad. Yeah, I think that's definitely it. But it, it does feel like a sort of perfect union of filmmaker and source material. Yeah, and testament to the producer. Yeah, Jeremy Thomas, who's been trying to get this off the grounds for so like, years. Yeah, yeah. So, like, because Ben Whitley's films on paper. They're like genre films, but Sightseers is a serial killer movie, which is about relationships, and Kill List is a hitman movie, which is about... I'm not quite sure what that's about. <laughs> Something about... Uh, Something about cults? Vigilante justice and how that's just a fallacy. I don't know. Anyway, in the same way, High Rise presents itself as a sort of class warfare analogy sort of thing, but it's not really that at all, because mm. everyone in the High Rise is the luxury flats. So the it's not the proletariat versus the bourgeois; it's the lower middle class versus the middle class and the, versus super, the rich. super rich. Yeah, it's um, they've already been filtered out before they even got in. Yeah, and the guy on the very bottom floor is a documentary maker. Yeah, so there is no true working class in the building. There's also no non-white people in the building. Yeah, they've yeah. also been filtered out in the seventies. And in a similar way to Ben Wheatley's previous movies, uh, there are no heroes, just protagonists. And so you think they're all very interesting, contradictory characters. So you think uh, Lang is the hero, but then he's sort of not. He's kind of passive. And you think maybe Wilde is the hero, but then he's not. And then you think, and the moral center of the film either shifts or doesn't exist, or it's somewhere in there. Yeah. And it's so unconventional in the way, and it's narrative. Uh, it's exhilarating to watch because you have no idea what's going to happen. Absolutely. But at the beginning of every scene, you have literally no idea how, <laughs> what is going to happen by the end of the scene. And I think because it's made with such confidence and it's also production designed to within an inch of its life. <laughs> like this is the first movie that Ben Wheatley has made where he's had money and uh, it's all built on a set. He's not used to sets and it feels like he's really excited by having sets and like he's just it's controlled down to a T. Um, and you really have this sense that you're in the hands of someone who really knows what they're doing. And that carries you through the madness a little bit because the movie, the movie pretty much goes nuts. Uh, you know, about like a third of the way through. Sure, yeah. And um, because well, when I went to see the movie, not knowing that much about it, I was expecting basically a gradual kind of gradient of like things in the high rise are great, and then they get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then at the end, it's just total apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. But things took a very quick left turn. Um, like they they really can't cope without the um, lights working, you know. Yeah. And after that, you're in absolute no man's land, and anything could happen because things have already broken. Like society's broken down already. And yeah. but it's like it's all made with such confidence that you really feel like he's guiding you to a destination, and he knows what he's doing. And so you're like, I can go with it. Well, that's what's also kind of unique about the movie, which I guess is in the apocalypse genre, in that most apocalyptic movies are either just before the apocalypse event and then ends with the event yeah like or is some period afterwards but it's rare that actually you show the transitional phase from the apocalypse happening to society readjusting i don't know i feel like i need a 
PhD yeah. to analyze the sort of what the movies, all the ideas in the film about society and class. Well, it's and a very animalistic instincts. And it's how a very, all... um, it's a very psychological film. Yeah, and it's interesting because the psychologies of the characters are deliberately not uh, exactly true to real life because it's not really explained why they didn't just leave. Um, <laughs> and because the, the when things get bad in the in the high rise, people kind of take it in their stride. And no one seems like that surprised. And people are still going to work and stuff. Like, he's still yeah, got yeah. his job. <laughs> and, and so there's odd things like that. It's kind of displacing the rea- like reality of psychology um, or how people real but really behave by a couple of degrees in order to examine it in a new way. And he kind of throws all of these different personalities into a blender and mixes them together and then sees... Or it's like a snow globe or something. And he sees how they settle and then shakes them up again and you see how they settle again. And it's it's kind of that thing as well um, that it's you know structurally unconventional and that the um, psychology is unconventional. That it's just the confidence of the whole project is what kind of carries you through, and the humor of it as well. Yeah, because I... a lot of these movies where people act crazy, like you're just not convinced because they're too serious. Whereas yeah. this movie is there's a levity to it and like a lightness to it that. Um, Absolutely, it's, it's a real entertaining romp. Like, Absolutely, yeah. They're not every scene is like something fun and exciting will happen. Yeah, or horrifying, which, but <laughs> or horrifying, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or blood curdling. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think this a lot of humor comes from the performances, uh, which are uniformly brilliant. Like Tom Hiddleston has probably got the hardest job to do because his character is, like you say, is a little bit like off. Mm. Uh, he's like completely convincing, but slightly aloof and he's like this sort of self-contained passive he's he's kind of sort of cornering the market in sort of very emotive staring isn't he tom Hiddleston? he's just very good at staring he's like reserved of... analytical yeah you know like a still lake with stuff going on underneath yeah, he's very good at that kind of thing and uh luke evans i was like i've only seen him be in sort of like quite shit roles in blockbusters like fucking hell this guy can act he's luke evans is amazing off. in this film he's so good and i know that it's a kind of oscar-y like off the chain screaming performance but it is still amazing you know yeah, like he's great he really goes for it and um, i saw this um at a preview screening with ben wheatley q a afterwards and he, one of the things he said about luke evans's performance or just performances generally he was like as a director actors put their trust in you and uh and he felt like it was a responsibility on him because he was asking them to do these like crazy things and he was really getting them to like go for it. Yeah. And Luke Evans is holding nothing back in this yeah, film yeah. whatsoever. And you can like when he was saying that you kind of understand that because like it's a very vulnerable performance that he gives, you know, and very intense. And um I want to see him make more movies like this because he was like awesome in it. Yeah, I'm just really looking forward to watching it again because it's a film you, you feel you could watch like loads of times and find new stuff. Yeah, like I feel that's that's sort of ben, a Ben Whitley thing, is that they're always like packed full of stuff. He does a really interesting thing with um, SOS by ABBA, where he has the, there's like an odd like sort of Regency era France party costume party scene in this, and there's like a string quartet, and they're just playing some kind of weird classical version of SOS by ABBA, and like it takes a while to sink in. And you're like, why are they doing that? It's not even like in the period of the movie. But it's just this sort of odd thing. And then later on in the movie, it recurs in a different, completely different way. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of roller coaster ride that the movie takes you on. And uh, at the same time, a very complex layered film that you could, you can kind of take out as much as you're willing to put in, you know, I yeah. think. You should have watched this after Anomalisa instead of before. Yeah. I think I'm happy you would be. Well, it's, a, it's weirdly optimistic for a film about societal breakdown. It's it's like very optimistic about the ability of humans to um, adjust to like awful sure. circumstances. Yeah, 
and uh, there is genuine human bonding and connection in high rise um in a way that there's not in uh, anomalisa so you're probably right should have seen it the way around yeah Yesterday I bumped into Imelda Staunton She was up with her dog and we got talking I asked her what she does when she isn't acting She said she likes podcasts for relaxing Imelda, when you're in the mood What do you listen to? She said I listen to one podcast I listen to one podcast Will you the ones can kiss my asses I listen to one podcast Film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat, so i just want to talk about star wars a bit more yeah i love talking about star wars i like we haven't talked about it um a couple of weeks jesus i'm, I'm palpitating yeah i'm sweating <laughs> um so uh as previously discussed on film chat they're making this spin-off han solo movie which is also a prequel sent set uh 10 years the rumors have it before the events of a new hope and uh you know on a process of casting the sort of unfillable shoes of Harrison Ford. Yeah, absolutely uh, unfillable. Apparently it's been uh, shortlisted down to three actors who are Taron Edgerton, who was the lead in Kingsman. Kingsman. And also in this new Eddie the Eagle movie. Um, Jack Raynor, who was in Transformers 4, Age of Extinction. Yeah, I don't know who he is. Uh, who's also the lead in What Richard Did, that Lenny Abramson movie, which everyone loved. Okay. And it was uh, that guy in Macbeth, the young king at the end and the other guy is uh, Alden Ehrenreich who recently stole the show as Hobie Doyle Hail Caesar the G-Yucks cowboy yeah Hail Caesar the net is closing Sam so we we really better get our skates on yeah when I heard about this movie I was like obviously Danny is perfect and if not him I am perfect yeah with the two most perfect people for that role quite clearly in the world yeah yeah if so... you could rewind Harrison Ford somehow and de-age him from like 95 or whatever old he is um he would probably look like, you know, our love child. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've got to get our um, auditions tape tapes together. Yeah, yeah. So I want to audition for it now, if that's okay. I'm yeah. Gonna, this no. is my audition tape. Yeah, but we'll I figured you we'll, guys can hear it. We'll cut this out and we'll send it in. Okay. I've got some lines up here. I'm. Uh, feel free to throw me any, you know, suggestions. I use them for smuggling. I never thought I'd be smuggling myself in them. This is ridiculous. <laughs> you're not doing a sort of voice for him. You're just doing your own voice, really. Well, you've got to make the role your own, right? Yeah, yeah. It's ten years before. So, oh, he so probably, this probably is, sounded this a lot. This is him at the start of the film, and by the arc, I'll become Harrison Ford. You know, it's a gradual yeah. thing. Okay, yeah. Let's see the next one. Yes, Greedo. I was just going to see your boss. Tell Jabber I've got his money. It's very good. And finally... If I close my eyes, it's like de-aged Ford. Wonderful girl. Either I'm going to kill her... Or, I'm beginning to like her. Wow. Oh my god, you took me on a whole journey from the beginning yeah. of that line to the end. Yeah, yeah. That was powerful. Well, Danny, I've got my own audition tape. It's a little different to yours. What? Well, I feel like what the young Han Solo needs is a bit of a Britpop flair. You know? Like, um, a bit of that live forever sure. um, kind of spirit. It was from, the 90s. It was great. From the 90s. Cocaine everywhere. 9-11 yeah. hadn't happened yet. Yeah. Blair was going to save us or something, wasn't he? Yeah. New Labour, it was all going to be great. Yeah, that New Labour spirit, you know, <laughs> things can only get better. And I think that that's the kind of verse that a young um, Han Solo should have. Okay. And that is what informs my audition tape. So I'll say nothing more about it. So, so let's sign off now and we'll have that particular audition tape at the end. Okay, so thanks for listening, guys. See you next week. We're going to review The Witch, Reviewing which the I've witch. already seen. It's well good. Go see it. 
And oh, great, great. Now they won't listen. They won't listen next week. You've blown and it. And some other film. Ten Cloverfield Lane. I yeah, I want to see Ten Cloverfield Lane. Okay, so yeah, that'll be it. Horror, horror, thriller week. I'm writing it in blood on myself right now. Those two things. Anyway. So see you then. Bye. Goodbye. Confidence is a preference for a younger version of a gunslinger who is known as... Solo. Well, I've got that in bundles. That's why I'm perfect for that dick swinger who is known as... Solo. I just completed the Kessel Run in 13 parsecs. But I think I could do better. Solo. Look at that hot lord marching. You should cut down on your platterwing paddy frog, mate. Get some exercise. Young and solo. Twenty-something solo. A spunky mockney boy. A geezer with a blaster. That's him. Makes perfect sense. I get up when I want, except on Wednesdays when I'm rudely awakened by a Wookiee. I put my waistcoat on, have a cup of tea, and I think about travelling through hyperspace. I like tightening up the old alluvial dampers with a hydra spanner. Gives me a sense of enormous well-being. And that's young Aunt Solo in a nutshell. Skinny English bloke doing a sort of rubbish Phil Daniels impression. Young Han Solo, full of calm Han Solo, a bright eyed cheeky lad, mucking about in space. That's me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I really think it could work. Give me a punt. 